0: The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Today uh, we're going to be talking about anarchism, the theory and practice. Um, To present the topic is going to be Jorge Torres, who is a shop steward and on the bargaining team for UFCW Local 21 in Seattle. So we have... uh, you know, really important uh, union activists here with us today to talk about anarchism and its implications for us and our organizing today. So, Jorge. Happy 4th of July, everybody. Uh, Now, I know we're all here to talk about something thoroughly uh, and proudly unpatriotic, which is anarchism and socialism. Uh, And... Just a word of warning. I think one lesson that I'll be learning from this is not to mix energy drinks. Um, but we'll see how this works out. Um, with the time I have, I want to go over three themes. I'm just going to cut right into it, skip any pretense of introduction, although I just gave one. Um, the first is try, attempting to define anarchism. What is anarchism? What are its theoretical starting points? And who are its major theoreticians? The second is uh, what are the lessons to be learned from anarchism historically? Both positive contributions to revolutionary theory and limitations in practice. Uh, What are some present-day examples of of anarchist thoughts in practice? And thirdly, how does anarchism differ from the revolutionary socialist tradition, Marxism, and Leninism for that matter? Um, So let's start with what is anarchism. And I'll preface by saying that trying to define and detail all the strains and currents of anarchism could take an entire weekend. Um, As Murray Bookchin states in, the Spanish anarchist of heroic years um, unlike Marxism with its founders, distinct body of texts, and clearly definable ideology anarchistic ideals are difficult to fix into a hard and fast credo I only have about 30 minutes um, and whereas Bookchin takes this as a source of pride and value the fact that anarchism is largely indefinam- has a largely indefinable basis can be problematic um, but there are a few positions that remain true to most forms of anarchism and the first is opposition to all authority Two, in aversion-building political organizations and and explicitly political organizations, the anarchists do build organizations. Um, And thirdly, a belief that the future liberated society must come from existing models within existing society. Prefigurative politics is a term used for it, and not authoritarian uh, methods of organizing. Anarchists as a whole have a a goal of achieving a world without oppression, a world free of exploitation, uh, where individuals are free to develop themselves without coercion. And one thing I'd add to this is that anarchism is historically characterized and largely defined by its reaction uh, to existing oppressions around it, as well as to the general left-wing movements which surrounds it uh, at any given time, which I think explains what Bookchin says about the difficulty uh, of fixing it into a hard and fast credo throughout history. Um, So who are its major theoreticians? And let's start off with, uh, I guess a plug for this book here. An example of the breadth of anarchisms can be found in The Great Anarchists, uh, Ideas and Teachings of Seven Major Thinkers by Paul Elsbacher. And one thing I found out pretty quickly that the, the problem of having multiple interpretations of anarchism is uh, seen plainly when it makes, even explaining the justi- justification for why these seven thinkers in here a very wordy introduction. And I'll spare you an example. Um, but also anarchism has evolved over time and there are now present day anarchists who reject Elsbacher's picks. Nevertheless, they are part, uh, for all intents and purposes, of the anarchist tradition. Um, In the time I have, I'll attempt to break this, uh, I'll try to trace anarchism's theoretical evolution and the practical applications uh, of each notable development, and I'll try to make it easier by attempting to, albeit crudely, separate it into three different, what I'll call waves, for lack of a better term, of anarchist thought. I'm going to start with the pre-Paris Commune period, which is roughly... 17, mid-1700s to mid-1800s, uh, the Paris Commune to the Spanish Revolution period, which is 1871 to 1936, and finally post-Spanish Revolution to today, or 1939 after the end of the Civil War, up into the present day, obviously. Um, so the pre-Paris Commune. This period of anarchism is largely seen to have found its expression in William Godwin, or uh, Goodwin, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon and Johann Caspar Schmidt, known as Max Stirner, who all lived within the mid-1700s to 1800s. We see in their writings the first developments of, uh, of explicitly anarchist thought as being in opposition to all authority. The society evolving around them was distinguished by the rise of capitalism and a new ruling elite, the bourgeoisie. Goodwin, Proudhon, and Stirner's writings were a response to the inconsistencies between the bourgeois seeing, saying freedom and democracy for all and at the same time having economic enslavement and exploitation of the the vast population for the benefit of a few. And so Goodwin astutely points out the injustices in his society. He says, on account of the accident of birth, it piles upon a single man enormous wealth. If one has been a beggar becomes a well-to-do man, we usually know that he has not precisely his honesty or usefulness to thank for this. (laughs) It is unjust that a man works to the point of destroying his health or his life, while another riots in superfluity. It is unjust that a man has not leisure to cultivate his mind, while another does not move a finger for the general welfare. Really, you know, really a a good point. Um, But the anarchists also had a naivety found in most leftists of their time. They believed, like the utopian socialists, that a new society could be achieved simply, as Proudhon said, as soon as the idea is popularized. Uh, all you need to do is convince enough people of the practicality and necessity and, bam, there you go, you're one step closer. Um, Proudhon attempted to convince people of a practical alternative to capitalism by setting up the People's Bank in 1849, working, as he put it, for the profit of its customers themselves to ensure work and prosperity to all producers as capitalists and as consumers. He went on to say, the might of its economic institutions... The gratuitousness of its credit, the brilliancy of its thought, uh, are its sufficient means for converting the universe. Um, Stirner, Max Stirner, drew further conclusions from this belief that the, of the strength of logic and reason um, for the crux of his ideas. He said, regard yourself as more powerful than they allege you to be, and you are more powerful. Uh, regard yourself as more and you are more He goes on to say, "...let me say to myself, whatever my might reaches to is my property, and claim as property all that I feel myself strong enough to attain, and let me make my real property extend as far as I entitle myself to take." Uh, Similarly, Proudhon's goal was, as he said, "...that I may remain free, that I may be subjected to no law but my own, that I may govern myself." So, these thinkers' conclusions were both non-revolutionary and individualistic solutions and I think that's because of their small business class backgrounds. Their relationship to production shaped the alternatives that they presented to the world around them. Because setting up an alternative to capitalist barbarism uh, with something like a people's bank within the existing economic confines ultimately does not directly confront uh, or challenge the system. Uh, Bookchin draws uh, us the same conclusion uh, which he talks about in The Spanish Anarchists, And I'm actually going to be uh, referring to him quite a bit in this. He says... Proudhon's vision was redolent of the provincial craft world into which he was born. His often patriarchal notion of liberty was limited by the social barriers of a craftsman and provincial man. Um, I want to fast forward a little bit to the Paris Commune. The uh, the short-lived Paris Commune in 1871 provides the first ever example of workers' power. This drastically reduces the popularity of utopian socialism and embodies for Marx and Engels their brand of scientific socialism. It also ushers in a development of anarchism from a simple theory of opposing all authority to recognizing the necessity of having uh, to build mass organized insurrectionary movements. This time period is characterized by what uh, Bookchin calls proletarian anarchism and anarcho-syndicalism and finds its expression in four different subjects. The first is Marx's contemporary Mikhail Alexandrovich Bakunin, uh, who is seen as the first anarchist to popularize the idea of the need for social revolution as opposed to individual uh, tactics. Um, the second is Russian prince and class trader Peter Alexeyevich Kropotkin, the proponent of propaganda by the deed, which I'll explain more a little later. Uh, the third, the National Spanish Syndicalist Trade Union, the CNT, uh, known in English as the National Workers' Confederation, uh, and this was. Uh, This was an anarchist-leaning, but not exclusively anarchist or explicitly anarchist uh, union, devoted to militant tactics. Uh, And the fourth was the Iberian Anarchist Federation, known as the FAI, um, created out of a decision by Spanish anarchists that they needed an explicitly anarchist organization to influence the CNT. Um, Now, while these four subjects take anarchism into the realm of social organizing... There's still a heavy emphasis on the centrality of the individual carried over from its predecessor, their predecessors. And in practice, this leads to some serious contradictions. Uh, for example, Bakunin, I'll start with him, is he's, he's widely accepted by anarchists, you see, improving society through mass social action. But he stated to escape its wretched lot, the populace has social revolution. Revolutions are never made, neither by individuals nor yet by secret societies. Um, And yet Bakunin created just that A secret society of anarchist militants known as the International Brotherhood The Brotherhood's stated purpose was to be a shadowy, tightly disciplined, highly centralized organization That could instigate and make the revolution I think this exemplified Bakunin's elitist belief that He and his followers were of a higher moral caliber that could navigate the distasteful world of uh, authority and power on behalf of the the corruptible masses. As Bookchin states, again in his book, uh, Bakunin's international brotherhood has been dealt with derisively as a hierarchical, elitist organization which stands in blatant contradiction to his libertarian principles. This contradiction, in my view, is very real, he says. Uh... Peter Kropotkin, thank you, experienced similar contradictions. So he could produce fiery proclamations like, what does this monstrous engine serve for that we call state? For preventing the exploitation of the laborer by the capitalist, of the, of the peasant, by the, by the landlord? Or for assuring us of work? For providing us food when a mother has nothing left but water to, to feed her child? No, a thousand times no. And at the same time, he agreed with Bakunin's uh, need to create the, the secret societies to prepare men's minds. He once stated in a, in a Congress, a single deed by one or more persons, one or more persons makes more propaganda in a few days than a thousand pamphlets. For him, an example of this uh, education through action tactic was the assassination of Russian Czar Alexander II in 1881. Kropotkin called this propaganda by the deed, um, making actions in order to inspire uh, revolt, which he only publicly rejected 10 years later when this idea proved to be another failure in sparking mass movement. An interesting thing about Kropotkin that I'll add is that later he later went on to break with uh, nearly every single uh, revolutionary anarchist of his time and wholeheartedly supported the, the Allied powers of World War I in his nationalistic and militaristic manifesto of the 16th. Um, so I want to talk about the last two groups together because throughout the, the Spanish Revolution and Civil War, they were commonly referred to as the CNT FAI, the hyphen in the middle. Uh, the CNT, the FAI, and the revolutionary struggle they waged in Spain in 1936 are to this day, held up as the most successful implementation of anarchist ideas on a mass scale. The CNT FAI had spent years developing a mass organization based on class struggle and strikes. They were given a chance to prove their politics in practice when General Francisco Franco and other military officers got uh, sick of of Spain's move towards a republic with laws that were slightly threatening to the property class. Um, The officers started their insurrection on July 17, 1936, with the aim of bringing the military to power. But instead of the easy victory that they had expected, the entire Spanish left reacted, whether it was the supporters of the republic, or the anarchists, or the syndicalists, or the communists, or Trotskyists, um obviously the most prominent of, of all these groups was the anarcho-syndicalists and the CNTFAI and instead of a coup the officers sparked a revolution uh, going into the Spanish revolution requires a whole lot more time and I just want to go over a few more um, a few important accomplishments of it for one the people of Spain threw off the yoke of the Catholic Church in most cases with a vengeance so whatever churches weren't burned to the ground were ransacked for their medals for the, for the uh, war effort to defeat the uh, Franco and for for industry And whatever was left over Ended up being used as markets Stables uh, Shelters Garages Priests and monks were rounded up In droves And either imprisoned Or just shot Depending on how uh, How patient the people were And um They set up a new standard education committee to take over former religious uh, school buildings and open them back up based on the rationalist principles of human labor and brotherhood, the feeling of universal solidarity, and a determination to suppress all kinds of privilege common ownership among the people became the norm as well. So you had industries like the Ford Iberia Motor Company, uh, the shipyards, the fishing industries, American Telegraph and, uh, and Telephone Company in Barcelona, all syndicalized, all collectivized by the workers and, and run by them. Collectivization in the countryside also spread like wildfire. And there's some really amazing examples that I think we, we, can, we can gain inspiration of where there, where there are communes of up to 600 families that all ran under direct democracy um, but instead of a victorious revolution that we can celebrate today, the movement degenerated into a civil war that ultimately saw Franco win. And why did this happen? Okay, good. No. Why did this happen? One reason, I believe, is due to the mistakes of the revolutionary leadership. Um, though, the F- though the CNTFAI had built up mass organization, They borrowed heavily from Bakunin and Kropotkin when it came time to set up their vision of the future liberated society. The communes and collectives they created were fully autonomous and localized in response, of course, to the existing modes of of centralized, top-down, hierarchical production that capitalism was instituting in Spain. This is a core idea of anarchism and is touted as one of its strongest points in immediate abolition of hierarchical structures and a creation of decentralized, autonomous alternatives to the authoritarian methods of organizing society. This was, after all, Bakunin and Kropotkin's vision. They both said things like, every commune has the unlimited right to complete independence as long as it doesn't interfere with another commune, no commune shall uh, uh, will, that will recognize nothing above it except the, the agreements that it makes with other communes. Now this theory when implemented was to the revolution's detriment because it fostered unevenness and disjointedness. Uh, a report from a commission of the Barcelona CNT in May 1937 explains this. they say spontaneous obeying no overall plan. The application of these measures, syndicalization and collectivization, resulted in putting workers in very different material circumstances. Pierre Brouet and Emil Tamim in their amazing book, The Revolution and the Civil War in Spain, expand on this idea. They say, there were rich firms and there were poor ones. Uh, wages varied considerably from one branch of industry and even from one factory to the next. Collectivization led to the same inequalities and even to the same absurdities that its supporters had criticized in the capitalist system. However, it did not lead to socialism or to libertarian communism. They end that chapter by saying the great weakness of the Spanish workers' revolutionary gains was even more than its improvised character, their incompleteness. And to be fair, Bruwe and Tamim point out that no one factor can explain the defeat of the Russian uh, of the Spanish Revolution. (laughs) In fact, just like the Russian Revolution twenty years before, the Spanish revolutionaries had to deal with international isolation, an organized and savage counter-revolution with international backing, a swelling economic catastrophe, and the lack of support from most former left groups. But the Spanish anarchists, uh, well, I mean, and I guess one thing I would want to say is that you should check any book you can on on the Spanish Revolution, you should check out because there's some really awesome and inspiring examples of the heroism of of the people of that time. Uh, But the Spanish anarchists' ideological heroism and their revolutionary zeal fell short when combined with the staunch belief that models of the new society must come not only immediately and without detour, but are in and of themselves a sign that the goal has been achieved. This staunch rejection of even temporary uh, centralization facilitated their feet at the hands of two competing groups vying, actively vying for power. That's a well-organized Francoist opposition that went through town to town uh, crushing the revolution and a counter-revolutionary bloc of the Communist Party of Spain uh, and the bourgeois supporters of the republic who, li- who ended up saying, this is what Franco is doing, we need to centralize our, uh, what we have now with a uh, shock of shocks, us being in power. Uh, but I kind of want to fast forward again to the anarchism of today. Uh, anarchism continues to maintain its opposition to all authority and its aversion to building political organizations. But it has gone a step further and rejects establishing all lasting organizations. It furthermore latches onto the examples of Spain and has embraced a belief that the future liberated society must come from attempted models within existing society. And this is this is definitely a step backwards for for anarchism because the Spanish anarchist defeat in the Civil War proved to be devastating for anarchist theory and practice in the following decades. The defeat led to a theoretical vacuousness of anarchism of the past 70 years. Uh, Murray Bookchin dubbed what was most popular in in the 1990s uh, the the, the strain of anarchism as, as lifestyle anarchism and he just derisively uh, criticizes it with his book Social Anarchism or Lifestyle Anarchism An Unbridgeable Chasm and I'm not going to spend any time at all on lifestyle anarchism because one, I assume that people who are here this weekend have at least an inkling that simply changing whether, whether, whether it's what you eat or, or what you wear or if you shop at my store or the central co-op or what music you listen to won't necessarily fundamentally change uh, the system and also I think it's kind of unfair I have an anarchist buddy who, who told me that like trying to trying to go to somebody and telling them they're a lifestyle anarchist is like going to a hipster and telling them they're a hipster. You know, they, they don't like it. It's, it's not it's not a nice word. Um, thank you. But uh, and also I think it's because you know we wouldn't. I don't know about anyone here, but I wouldn't want to go to uh, the the Seattle Anarchist Book Fair this August and have them have uh, a workshop on socialism theory and practice, and all they do is just criticize reform socialists. It's it's just not just not necessary um, so what I want to talk about is the new anarchism because anarchism as a theory is changing once again to directly counterpose today's institutions of oppression and inequality there are a few major trends of anarchism that are developing which you can find uh, in an awesome article by Eric Curl in the newest ISR and these trends are what self-described unrepentant anarchist Andrei Grubachek calls the new anarchism I'm only going to go into three of these trends, partly for time and also for the fact that I think that they're they're what most affect and also what most affect us in the movements, and also are some really exciting developments. The first is insurrectionary anarchism, which I believe anybody who's been working the budget cuts movement around the country has has uh, con- has run into. Uh, the second is class struggle anarcho syndicalism, and the third is platformism. A so word of warning about this. These trends are not always easily discernible uh, or mutually exclusive, and more often than not, they're interwoven and uh, they share a lot of commonalities. But I'm going to try and pull them apart and get to the roots of each one of them. Insurrectionary anarchism, I think most people are, more, are most familiar with this one. is known for its, its vandalism and direct confrontation. It sees its expression in the black blocs, which gained notoriety during the global justice movement. Uh, this trend is noted for their serious lack of patience. Bombastic rhetoric in its writings, rejection of the working class as a liberatory force, and refusal to participate in traditional forms of protest, which it sees as reformist. It's in many ways an extension of of Kropotkin's propaganda by the deed. Uh, Examples of the theoretical underpinnings of of insurrectionary anarchists can be found in What We Demand Instead is Life uh, by the Arctic Collective and based in Seattle, who say things like the reformist student movement is trying to win gains from the university so that the university. Uh, may, can maintain may maintain our our misery more perfectly if you fight in a cage and win you are still fucking caged they say uh, another one is occupy everything, demand nothing by an autonomous organizer uh, from Olympia washington which who who explains what this means occupy everything, demand nothing uh, He or she says to demand nothing. Is also a call to assume control by demanding nothing we demonstrate that we have no use for the powers that be we occupy everything because everything is ours we demand nothing because they have nothing to give us Um, I think this is gonna people already have uh, I think we'll have a lot of time to talk about that and give their own opinion about it because then I just want to jump into the third uh, work which is the coming insurrection by the invisible committee uh, out of Paris And this is, I think, the most clear uh, theoretical basis of insurrectionary anarchism. You can find some really choice quotes in here, like, um, like, like their quote on becoming autonomous, essentially becoming radical. They say, becoming autonomous could just as easily mean learning how to fight in the street, to occupy empty houses, to cease working, to love each other madly, and to shoplift. Uh, they say the first obstacle of every social movement, that every social movement faces long before the police proper are the unions. Um, and they go on to talk more about their general kind of disillusionment in, with, with the working class and with working class organizations. And one quote I just have to read because it's, it's good is um, they say, we are not depressed. We're on strike. For those who refuse to manage themselves, oppression is not a state, but a passage, a bowing out, a sidestep towards a political disaffiliation. Um, and it goes on from there. Um, oh, man, I lost page 10. Oh, here it is. <laughs> uh, I think another, another good, I think, counter to, the, to these three uh, things... Uh, these three works is an article by Doug Singson, which was published in Socialist Worker Online on March 29 of this year called The Debate in Our Movement. And it's really, a, just a really good, short, concise article about kind of responding to insurrectionary anarchism. But I want to jump into uh, class struggle and syndicalism, And that, this type of, of anarchism is elaborated in the book The Black Flame, which can be found on the Haymarket Table, I believe still, uh, by Michael Schmidt and Walter Waal. Uh, and, and in it they seek to reinvigorate the syndicalist tradition in anarchism witnessed in the Spanish Revolution as an explicit set of revolutionary politics centered on the struggle of the working class uh, two groups that I think uh, represent this very well are uh, the industrial workers of the world which can be found in the Bay Area across the country and also in Seattle in fact they, uh, they represent the administrative workers uh, in my workplace in uh, IU local number 660 and they've also, of course, won some very inspiring victories against Starbucks. Another group in Seattle is the Seattle Solidarity Network, which is a, a community action group initiated by the IWW and has been taking up some very important campaigns to defend non-union workers, uh, winning their back pay, winning, uh, uh, winning higher wages in a sense, and also standing up to landlords, crooked landlords, who take advantage of tenants who more often than not are people of color who don't speak English. Um, The third group, which I mentioned earlier, is platformism. And this is, I think, a really interesting uh, uh, current in anarchism. Its name is attributed to its founding document, The Organizational Platform of the General Union of Anarchists, which was published in 1926. And it was published by Nestor Makhno and his comrades in the wake of of the Russian Revolution. Um, If people don't know who Nestor Makhno is, just just let me know. Um, But platformism represents an attempt from within anarchism to solve the weaknesses the historical weaknesses around questions of organization, theory, and practice and pose a challenge to traditional uh, anarchist hostility towards political action. They see necessity in participating in political debate organiza- organizing politically and and uh, having a centralized unity in agreement inside their organization This trend in anarchism has historically been the least popular within the movement and I would argue this is due to a knee jerk reaction with most anarchists toward, uh a knee jerk suspicion and hostility uh, towards uh, structure and organization Uh, a really I think a really good example of of this trend of uh, platformism is the love and rage revolutionary anarchist federation which existed from uh, 1989 to 1998 in North America um and which is kind of written about in this book, A New World in Our Hearts, Eight Years of Writings from the Love and Rage Revolutionary Anarchist Federation, edited by Roy Sanfilippo. And I want to go into Love and Rage just a little bit, because they viewed their role in the anarchist movement as building a leadership organization of revolutionaries who both educated themselves and actively participated in political and social movements. They recognized the importance of putting their ideas out there, essentially, and trying to win people over to them. At the same time, they suffered from a major internal contradiction because they believed in participating in struggles to help shape the movements. And at the same time, they rejected the idea that they were building a a group of, of leaders who could help push the movements into a revolution. And ultimately, they collapsed amidst debates of structure, political orientation, and direction. These three strains of anarchism are currently being debated within the anarchist movement. And whereas insurrectionary anarchism is starting to raise more and more criticisms uh, from many anarchists for its romanticization of, of uh, street battles and illegal activities, Platformists and class struggle anarcho-syndicalists have yet to prove themselves in in practice in a decisive way in the U.S. However, as the Great Recession continues to squeeze the working class and as uh, workers begin to show their revolutionary potential more and more, platformist and class struggle groups like Seattle Solidarity, like the IWW, like uh, Four Star Anarchist Organization in Chicago, like the Northeastern Federation of Anarchist Communists, NEFAC, will gain more of a following, I believe oh shit okay um, how's everybody doing? good? okay uh, I'm getting towards the end here, towards the last the third point, the third theme the revolutionary socialist tradition let's compare anarchism to revolutionary socialism. Anarchism is a political ideology by its nature it's a knee-jerk reaction to all the injustices and inequalities in society and this explains its seemingly perpetual contradictions and fluctuations in practice and thought, as, as well as why anarchism is in its current state, because it constantly adapts to the social structures around it, and the social oppressions and the economic oppressions that exist around it. So, for example, you'll remember that the pre-Paris Commune uh, was a reaction to the rapidly ascending bourgeoisie. The Paris Commune to the Spanish Revolution uh, period... Uh, Anarchism was largely shaped by, by a reaction to re, the reform socialists and general reformists and leftists of, of their time, which I unfortunately didn't have time to get into. And post-Spain to the present-day uh, anarchism has been shaped by a reaction to the fallout of the Stalinist distortion of socialism. Marxists, like anarchists, want to see a world free of oppression, where the free development of each is uh, the precondition for the free development of all. But Marxists have a wholly different way of analyzing society, the roots of oppression, and consequently the methods for struggle for a new society. Marx based his view of society on a scientific analysis of capitalism and its historical development. So let's go through the three defining points that I mentioned earlier about anarchism, and let's start with an opposition to all authority. Firstly, do Marxists oppose all authority? The simple answer is no. Uh, But the answer is more complex than that. Because we agree with anarchists that the highest form of authority today is the modern-day state and we oppose the state because it is the current administrator of economic inequality and social oppression. But Marxists understand power and hierarchical structures in the historical context from which they emerge. Anarchists do not address the development of authority in history, but just oppose it in all its forms. Uh, Love and Rage prided themselves for being staunch enemies of the state, but couldn't explain where it came from, saying, for example, eventually divisions based on gender, wealth, uh, age became increasingly rigid. The state didn't arise from, uh, one day from one guy deciding, oh, I want to rule over people, but from the historical development of the methods by which societies meet their physical needs. And I'll get into what that means. Like what, what does the historical development of the methods by which societies meet their needs mean? Agriculture developed because it was better at providing for people than foraging class divisions arose because someone had to manage the surplus that agriculture was producing. Divisions and differences are consciously used to keep the majority from uniting against the ruling minority. Marxists see the state, along with its unaccountable authority, existing to protect the interests of the ruling class. This is a historical materialist analysis of society, wholly different from just a cursory glance of, of history. Marxists find a historical impetus for the development of the state and attempt to chart out its dissolution. One thing that a Marxist find that most anarchists uh, agree with and acknowledge is that the ruling class will not leave this stage of history without a fight. But it's not enough to overthrow the state and then go about setting up communes. The capitalists must be prevented from returning to power. In this, Marxists understand something that the best Spanish anarchists only realize too late in the revolution. If the working class does not take the official reins of power, someone else will try to. And this actually gets us into the second point, an aversion to building political organizations. Socialists believe in order for workers to take power, there needs to be an organization that is involved in local neighborhood struggles as well as in uh, the larger political arena. Marxists believe that you can't separate uh, the struggle against exploitation and oppression. We are exploited under capitalism and our exploitation is regulated by the capitalist state which uses homophobia, racism, nationalism, sexism, etc. to divide us. Many anarchist groups do, unfortunately, separate these struggles, forming different groups for different issues. Um, and what groups like the IWW and Seattle Solidarity miss is that struggle isn't simply a battle between employers and workers, landlords and te- tenants. And I just do, do want to mention that I'm not saying that groups like the IWW don't march on May Day, don't work in the LGBT movement, because they do. Um... But I think that the outlook is different for for these for these actions, and I think Dave Iron mentioned in the uh, in the IWW meeting yesterday, where he said that you know, whereas the ISO has that as an active kind of viewpoint, we need to be we need to consciously involve ourselves in in, in the social movements as well as the economic sphere. Um, the IWW of the past, and I would argue, currently. Um, has that kind of as a, as a secondary, like as, you know, this is kind of like a follow-up to what we need to do. Um, people are exploited and they're oppressed. Workers don't experience these things separately, and we shouldn't struggle against them separately. Challenging homophobia, for example, means challenging it in the workplace, yes, uh, with uh, the fighting, for example, for the Employee Non-Discrimination Act, and also fighting for the Employee Free Choice Act, because if homophobia isn't challenged through ENDA, workers can't unite and win unions through EFCA. And Engels had something to say about this when uh, debating the Italian Bakuninists who rejected engaging in politics at all. Uh, He said, Experience of real life, political oppression, which is imposed on them by existing governments, force the workers to engage in politics whether they like it or not. To preach abstention to them would be to drive them into the arms of bourgeois politics. And, thank you, similar to the first point, If you don't provide a coherent analysis of world events in an organized and cohesive way, uh, another organized body, whether it's the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the Tea Party movement, will provide that option for you. In order to develop a set of politics, you need an organization uh, that provides a full discussion over the issues of the day with all its members so as to come to a formal position that it can then implement. In a political organization, you need democracy to hash out the entire group's uh, interpretation of the world, and you need centralism, both on-the-spot leadership to make decisions when the rest of the group can't as a whole, and also to, to get rid of that kind of fair-weather member uh, mentality where I'll be a part of this group as long as we do the action that I want to, and then I'm going to step away from it when we don't do the action that I want to. That doesn't, that doesn't create an effective group. Uh, That can actually see that can where we can see societal change. The ISO is centralized so that we can be more effective. The state is clearly a centralized force, and you need to match that by being symmetrical to it if you hope to defeat it. And this is the primary point of contention between anarchists and revolutionary socialists. In what way should we achieve the new society? What model should we use? Should we reject the centralized revolutionary party? NEFAC, who I mentioned earlier, uh, opposes centralization in exchange for federalism because they see this gives each enclave full autonomy that they need. Uh, and this kind of, this, this flows into the third point about a belief that the future liberated society must come from existing models of, of, of society uh, that currently, that while in, within existing society, prefigurative politics, trying to prefigure what you're going to see in the here and now in an attempt to have the, the, its purest form in the future. Due to the fact that most anarchists don't have a clear sense of how to achieve a liberated society, they fall on smaller models that can be the change that we want to see in the world, to paraphrase the famous quote. Whether it's uh, veganism, setting up communes, or creating cooperatives. And I just want to quickly say, I'm not knocking veganism because it's a very healthy lifestyle choice, um, which I highly I highly recommend. Um, but when taken as a, as a political basis for a revolutionary politics, uh, I think that I think you'll find uh, a, lot of, a lot to confront there um, and even the platformist anarchists like NIFAC fall into this trap they believe that having a centralized organization runs counter to the society they're fighting for this is true a centralized society may not be uh, what the future class of society will look like but revolutionary socialists don't see themselves as embodying the future society only as the instrument to achieving it and the instrument never reflects the final product uh, I just want to end with a quote by Tony Cliff, a former uh, socialist from, from Britain, who a revolutionary socialist, who once used this great analogy, and I'm just going to lift it because it's really good. <laughs> he says, take for example the Venus de Milo. Lauded is one of the most beautiful works of art. But in order to create the Venus de Milo, you did not need a, a hammer shaped like the Venus de Milo. You need a hammer and chisel, both crude instruments that can be used for any number of projects.